you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open it with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark 14. This morning we're going to give our attention to verses 12 through 21 as we are studying our way through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings. As we read this morning, I'm going to broaden uh, the verses that we'll read, but we'll look specifically at verses 12 through 21. We'll read all the way down through verse 31. And I'm doing that because uh, Mark is serving us uh, seconds this morning, if you will. He's providing us another scripture sandwich. And if you're wondering what in the world is a scripture sandwich, that's okay. Uh, This is a literary technique that Mark uses in arranging the material of his gospels. We saw this last Sunday as we began chapter 14, the first 11 verses there. Uh, Mark gives us two pieces of bread, if you will. Uh, two things that are similar uh, in, in their uh, contents, and then he puts the meat in the middle, and the meat is really where Mark wants us to focus. Uh, and so he does that again in Mark 14, verses 12 through 31. The sandwich is uh, enveloped, if you will, it, the bread pieces uh, deal with the betrayal of Jesus and then the denial of Peter, these two instances uh, where Jesus is being forsaken by those who knew him quite well. And then sandwiched in the middle, the meat in the middle, is Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. And uh, we'll, Lord willing, come to that next Sunday. We'll look at those verses, and then, Lord willing, the Sunday following, we'll look at the second piece of bread. But I want to read it in its totality just to help you see the structure, but we'll focus uh, only on uh, that first part of the sandwich, verses 12 through 21. Uh, Before I read the text this morning, just a a quick uh, word of uh, affirmation. We are so blessed to have with us again Uh, Our minister of music and missions, Joseph Malden, he'd been away uh, through the month of July on a sabbatical, and so we're blessed to have him back leading us again, and uh, certainly thankful for the Lord bringing you and your wife and your three girls back to us, and I look forward to continuing on and making much of God with you. I told the first service, I was so excited about him coming back and wanted to honor him, I I decided I would dress just like him this morning, Uh, that, that I wanted to be just like Joseph this morning and what I wore, and so we coordinated our outfits really well. And uh, you should all be extremely impressed by that. All right, let's get to the word this morning. Mark 14, Mark 14, beginning with verse 12. Hear God's word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, 
when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray once more. Lord, we give our thanks to you now for this, your holy word. And Lord, we pray that in the power of your spirit, your word would go out and not return void. We pray that your word would be like a fire consuming our bones. Let it be like a hammer that would break the hardness of our hearts into pieces. Let your word be living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it may shape and fashion us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray today that by the help of your Spirit, you would give us eyes that we would see, ears that we would hear. Father, give us hearts that would be soft to believe and obey what your word says to us today. For we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning as we... Look at the first part of Mark's scripture sandwich here in the middle of Mark 14. The text brings us to the very eve of the crucifixion, to the very evening where Jesus will share in the Last Supper with his disciples. John in his gospel fills in some of the details that Mark leaves out. John tells us in John 13 verse 1 that on this occasion, Jesus knew, he knew that his hour had now come. As Jesus comes to this Last Supper moment with his disciples in the upper room, he was aware that the purpose for which he had come to earth, the purpose for which he had taken on the the form of human flesh, it was now to be realized with a crucifixion just hours away. The Last Supper, which unfolds before us in our study of Mark this morning, is perhaps the most memorable meal in all of human history. In this occasion, we find a scene that is filled with beautiful truths, but also tragic betrayal. For many of us this morning, this scene has been pressed upon our mind through the image of the famed artist Leonardo da Vinci, his uh, impression of the Last Supper moment. You're, You're familiar with that. It shows Jesus and the apostles sitting at a banquet table. It's the familiar scene that we often see in association with this occasion. And while da Vinci was exceptional at his craft as an artist, his representation of this particular moment uh, takes a lot of artistic liberties. In all honesty, it leaves quite a lot wanting. We're better off this morning to let Scripture paint for us the image of this somber occasion. And that's exactly what Mark does for us here in our text. As we look closely at verses 12 through 21, Mark paints the picture for us of the Last Supper, and he does it not with a paintbrush, but with his pen. And as he strokes the words of uh, verses 12 through 21, Mark is giving us two scenes that unfold in connection with this Last Supper moment. I want to share these two scenes with you as we look back into the text and and kind of give some understanding, hopefully, to what's taking place. And then uh, before we leave this morning, see if we can't help, help understand how these scenes press upon our lives today. How what Mark is telling us here in the text shapes how we live as we go from this place this morning. So scene number one, it's verses 12 through 16. I've simply given it the heading, the preparation for Passover. 
Uh, In these verses, Mark is describing for us the preparations that were undertaken by Jesus and his disciples in preparing to share the Passover meal. Uh, The Passover was the most important day on the Jewish calendar. It was that day set aside, commanded to be kept, where they would commemorate God's deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt. It's what we read about in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus how God uh, raised up Moses and how he would use them to lead them out of bondage through the wilderness and ultimately to the precipice of the promised land. In God's instructions, this celebration was to take place only in Jerusalem. And that's why at this occasion, uh, on this particular day of the calendar, the population of Jerusalem swelled. Uh, Some historians say that as many as two million people would be gathered inside the city walls for this particular occasion. The ancient historian Josephus, uh, in his writings of the Passover, comments that on that day of preparation, where the lambs were to be sacrificed, that would be used in the Passover meal, as many as 250,000 lambs would be slaughtered. It was certainly a poignant scene, a memorable occasion as they came together in homes and as families to celebrate what God had done for his people. But sharing in the Passover meal required careful preparation. In many ways, it's familiar to what we know as a progressive dinner. Some of you have participated in those occasions where things kind of unfold as the dinner continues on. Well, that was similar to what transpired with the Passover. It took place in four segments. In these segments, there were questions that would be asked and answers given by the father or the patriarch of the family. Uh, There were certain meal elements that had to be eaten and prepared in particular ways to give memory of things that transpired in their bondage in Egypt. There were four cups of wine that would be shared, and all of this went on late until the evening, lasting almost up until midnight. And because this was such an important occasion, the disciples knew that they needed to make preparations. And so they asked Jesus... Now on the Thursday of Holy Week, where do we go in Jerusalem to have this celebration together? A location and the elements needed to be secured. And the fact that Jesus' disciples are asking him this wasn't uncommon. In this culture, Jewish rabbis who were seen as the teachers had their disciples, their followers, and it was understood that the the disciples, the followers, would bear the responsibility of preparing for the Passover on behalf of their rabbis. So they were kind of going along with customs. And so they asked, Jesus, where do we go to prepare to eat this important celebration with you? In verse 13, Jesus gives his reply. He gives instructions. He sends two of his disciples. Luke actually names them in Luke chapter 22, his account of this occasion. He tells us that it was Peter and John. He gives instructions that they're to go into the city, And to look for a man carrying a jug of water, and then follow him, and whatever house he goes into, you say to the master of that house, the teacher says, where's his room that he will share the Passover in with his disciples? This is very interesting, isn't it, for for many reasons. It's very similar to what we read in our study of Mark 11, uh, the beginning of Holy Week, where Jesus is coming in on what we refer to as Palm Sunday, Uh, As he gets close to the city, he sends two of his disciples in to to look for a foal of a colt that he can ride upon. And he gives some very similar instructions. You'll look for this, you'll look for that, you'll find this colt tied up, and then you tell him Jesus has need of it, and they'll let uh, let him go, and you can bring him to me. Very similar with what Jesus is doing here on this particular occasion. 
and the specific instructions that he gives, uh, they, they, they kind of stand out. Particularly, his command to look for a man carrying a water jug. That would have been incredibly unusual in Jesus' day, especially in the city of Jerusalem. Carrying the water jugs in that culture at that time was a task that was primarily carried out by women. Uh, we see this in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4, as Jesus is at the well of, of, uh, of Samaria there, and the woman comes in the midday sun. She's bringing her jar, her water pot, to draw water. It was a task assigned mostly to women. And so to see a man carrying this jar would have been kind of standing out. And Jesus says, that's what you're to look for. You see that unusual occurrence, follow him to this house, and then say to the master of that house that Jesus needs to use this room. He's looking for a place to share the Passover. Well, this is some strange instruction given by Jesus. Uh, In this, I think we find a couple of things coming together. I think there's intentionality on Jesus' part. But I also think we see the operation of his deity. There's supernatural components of this as well. Jesus perhaps had planned ahead in some of this while he was there in Jerusalem during this week and made some preparations. But, but also we get a glimpse of his divine nature working and operating here. Perhaps knowing things that no other person would know. Seeing things as only a God who sees into the future can. But I think the main thing that we've got to see here is the way in which Jesus operates. He operates with some incredible shrewdness. Now that's interesting, isn't it? When you think about Jesus, there are a lot of things that you think about him being, right? He's compassionate, he's kind, he's loving, he's gentle, he's all of these things. But we seldom think about Jesus being shrewd. And many times we think of shrewdness as being some sort of of negative uh, attribute. But that's not the case at all. Being shrewd simply means that you're operating with discernment. It means that you're displaying and deploying sound wisdom and how you're going about doing things. And in fact, that's how Jesus calls us to be as his disciples. In Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus says, operate with some sound discernment, with good wisdom, be shrewd. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. I mean, when we look at this carefully, if we, if we read it closely, it seems like Jesus is sending Peter and John on this kind of secret spy uh, uh, espionage mission. It's really uh, clandestine in what Jesus is saying. You're going to look for this guy carrying the water pot and then follow him to this house. And when you go to the house, don't mention my name. Just say the teacher needs to share the Passover here. I mean, it's all of this kind of, kind of secrecy going on. Jesus doing this with great discernment and employ wisdom. No mention of his name. No mention of anybody's names. Well, why would that be? Well, think about what's going on at this occasion. Mark has already told us in chapter 14 that the religious leaders are planning and scheming. They're plotting They're looking for an opportunity that they can arrest Jesus and hold him till this festival and celebration is passed and then ultimately put him to death. And then at the end of our passage last Sunday, in verses 10 and 11, we're told that Judas is now in on this as well, that he has opened his heart to the working of the enemy. And now Judas himself, an insider, is seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. So it really shouldn't be surprising that Jesus is kind of keeping things uh, tight. 
Don't go to Jerusalem and mention my name. Just simply look for the water guy. Go to the house and just say the teacher, and they'll know exactly who you're talking about. They'll understand that as a a reference to me. Jesus is being very shrewd here. And the purpose behind that is because Jesus knows his hour has come. That appointed time for which he has been sent into the world is not far away. God has determined and set the date in which his son will be given as a sacrifice for our sins. And so Jesus is operating here in this fashion to keep that plan going forward. Jesus makes preparations for the Passover. They go into the city, they find it exactly as they were told, and they prepared there for the celebration to occur. And then that brings us to the second scene. This is verses 17 through 21. And in this scene, Mark paints the picture of the conversation during the Passover. The conversation during the Passover. In verse 17, it's now evening Uh, in Jewish culture, especially there in Jerusalem. A a new day had begun. The day of Passover had now arrived with sunset. And Mark tells us that he came with the twelve. And they were reclining at table and eating. This is really where da Vinci's picture goes off the rails. If you remember that familiar image of the Last Supper, as beautiful as it is and as an expression of his skill and talent, uh, he had them sitting at a table. Jesus didn't sit at a table. There were no stools and there were no chairs. There was no banquet table that was there. That was certainly not the custom of Jewish men in this occasion. Instead, there would be a table kind of there in the center of the room, and the men would lie around it. They would prop on an elbow with their head close to the table, their feet far from it, and they would kind of lay in that fashion and enjoy the meal and share in conversation. And that's exactly what Mark said was happening. As the segments of the Passover meal began to unfold, they were there in this fashion. And there, perhaps close to the middle of it, Jesus speaks up. And in verse 18, he says, truly. It's a weighted word. It's a statement that that Jesus is making sure that all will hear. He says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, in this day and age, they had no concept of what a bomb was, at least in my understanding. But if they did, they would have said Jesus just dropped a bomb in the middle of this occasion. With those words, Jesus just sucked all of the air out of the room. Jesus said very clearly, very plainly, very powerfully, listen, I am telling you that one of you will betray me. Shocking. That Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ, the one who had healed many, delivered others, that he would be betrayed. This was shocking enough, but then Jesus adds to that another level when he says, and it will be by one who is eating with me. This was almost more than they could bear. In that culture, even as it still exists in our day as well, to, to share a meal with someone was a really intimate occasion. It was a sign of closeness and fellowship and friendship. And the very idea, the very thought that someone who would eat with Jesus would be counted as a friend of Jesus could betray him. It was earth shattering to those who heard him. Then in verse 19, Mark tells us that they began to be sorrowful. 
What Jesus has said began to be pressed down into their souls. They began to feel the the weight of his statement upon their hearts. They they couldn't fathom it. They they couldn't believe it so much so that they began to say to him one after another, almost interrupting themselves, is it I? Am am I going to be the one to carry out this heinous act? Is Is it me? Who is it? Then in verse 20, Jesus tightens the circle, if you will. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. In these words, it becomes clear that, yes, Jesus was there with his delegated representatives, the the apostles, those whom he called and chose to to fulfill that office that he had set them apart for. But, But it also lets us know that there were others there as well. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, he had those 12, but, but there were other disciples who followed along. We see them from time to time in the Gospels. There were the, the women who were there. There were other followers of Jesus who were there. Those that had heard and believed and gave their lives to following and learning from him. And it seems to be that they were there on this occasion, some scattered about, maybe some there in the room, maybe even some lying at a table if it was large enough with them. But Jesus narrows the group. He says it's actually one among the twelve, one among the closest, one among the called, one among those who have been sent out by me. And then Jesus kind of zeroes in even more. He says, it's the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, as part of this meal, the Passover celebration, there were various pieces of bread that would be used in dishes uh, that they would dip them into. And so Jesus says, it's one that's close enough put his bread into the bowl with me. And that may have been all 12, or it may have been just a few. It may have been like when you go to the Mexican restaurant for lunch and they bring 18 bowls of salsa and put them on the table for you. You see it as you see fit. But Jesus is kind of of drawing the conclusion that it's someone you would not expect. Again, John sheds more light on the happenings of this occasion. In his gospel, he tells us that at this moment, Jesus actually dipped it in bread, uh, dipped the bread into the paste there on the table and handed it to Judas Iscariot as a sign that he would be the one to betray him. But even that was lost on all of those who were there. Judas left at that moment and they, they didn't put it together. Jesus told him, you go and do what you need to do and do it quickly. And they thought they were just telling Judas to go and take care of some poor people or go and pay for the arrangements that had been made. Judas carried the, the money bag. He carried the purse. And so they were lost on what Jesus was saying to him there. But Jesus knew. He knew clearly that it would be Judas who would act as his betrayer. And in verse 21, he says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Speculation had filled the room, but Jesus knew it was Judas. And in that cloud of sorrow, Judas departed and began to hatch the greatest act of treachery the world has ever known, selling out the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. This is the somber scene that Mark paints for us with his pen of the Last Supper of Jesus. What do we do with this? What do we do with these verses? 
It's good that we understand kind of what's happening. It's good that we understand the customs that are underneath the surface here. But, but God's Word is living and active, and it shapes our lives today. So, so what do we do with this scene of the Last Supper that Mark gives us? Well, I think there's five actions that we can take. Five takeaways from these verses that, a touch, that touch and apply, our lives, apply to our lives today. Number one, these verses remind us as followers of Jesus Christ, that we can rest in God's sovereignty. We can rest in God's sovereignty. I know what you're thinking. Preacher, you sound a little bit like a broken record. You said that last Sunday. Because we saw it in the beginning of Mark's gospel in Mark 14. He brings that up as a contrast of uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But I bring it up to you again because it's clearly here in the text Mark is presenting it to us. He, he, may, he wants to make sure that we don't miss this. That things are unfolding according to God's divine plan. We see that in how the preparations for the Passover meal come to pass. This supernatural action on Jesus' part of this unusual water pot carrier in this room that is furnished by someone who simply knows Jesus as the teacher. All of that seems to point us to divine interaction. But if it's, if it's cloudy there it's crystal clear by the time we get to the the end of our text this morning when we get to verse 21 jesus holds nothing back where he plainly states for the son of man goes as it is written of him jesus understood that the events that were unfolding were happening according to the exact purposes and plans of the heavenly father that things that were unfolding now were happening according to god's uh, decreed uh, actions why does Mark stress this, though? Why am I talking about this two weeks in a row in Mark 14? Well, we've we, we got to realize that when we come to Mark 14, the lights are growing dim verse by verse. Darkness is encroaching. Night is coming. It's really interesting when you go back and you read Mark 13, that chapter where Jesus is talking about the end of the temple and the end of times. And as he's talking to the disciples there, he gives several time markers. He talks about evening. He talks about midnight. He talks about the rooster crowing. We find all of those things unfolding now in Mark 14. Jesus is painting this picture of things growing darker and darker and darker and darker. And oh, how easy it is that when we see things getting darker around us, when we see spiritual darkness encroaching upon us, how easy it is to think that things have gone wrong, that things have gone off the rail, that, that somehow God's plan isn't going to come to pass. But that's not the case at all, and Mark is stressing that here, that yes, yes, dark events are unfolding in Judas' heart and, and in the betrayal of Jesus and in his coming crucifixion, but all of these things are being fulfilled according to God's sovereign Plan. God remains fully in control even in life's most darkest moments. And that's a truth we need to hold on to. Because you and I know we all face some dark days, don't we? we you and I know that we see culture getting darker and darker. So do we fret? Do we freak out? Uh, do we grow uh, uh, incredibly anxious? No. We rest and remember that our God is sovereign over all, that He sits enthroned in heaven. And that his sovereign is incredibly meticulous. The text points us to this. 
A man carrying a water pot. A home prepared for the Passover. An upper room that is for Jesus. This is meticulous sovereignty on display. That God is sovereign over all aspects. He said, now preacher, I don't know if I really believe that. In Proverbs 16, verse 33, the Bible says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Let me give you a paraphrase of that. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. I was thinking about that as I was playing a game in our home last night with my wife and youngest son, uh, that board game Risk. Some of y'all remember that? You got the continents and the countries and all the little soldiers, and you're trying to overthrow people and you know, capture continents, and dice are involved, and you're rolling to see how many battles you can win. And I'll just say this, the Lord was favorable upon me. Because I walked away victorious. We roll the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. His sovereignty is incredibly meticulous. It's on display here before us, but I also recognize that in his meticulous sovereignty, there's great mystery, isn't there? I can't explain to you how the sovereignty of God works in all of its ways. I can't explain to you uh, in a way that you would probably like to receive how God is working out his sovereign plan in concert with the free agency of moral creatures and our responsibility. The Bible is clear, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are some things that God has not made known to us. And listen to me, because he's God, that is his prerogative. And I have no explanation, nor should I be required to give any to you who would ask about those things, because I simply don't know. But what I do know is that his sovereignty is incredibly marvelous. Oh, how comforting it is to know that there's nothing outside of God's control. And that God is sovereign even over sin and evil even over suffering. This is why the beautiful promise in Romans 8, 28 is so precious to us. For we know that God works all things together to good for those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Uh, this is what Joseph understood in the book of Genesis as he was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery and ultimately uh, rose to a position of prominence in Egypt. Joseph looked at them and said, you meant this for evil and evil it was, but God has used it for good. This is the marvelous glory of a sovereign God. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, and I'll leave this point with these words. We need to see that God's sovereignty is a pillow upon which we can lay our heads and rest. You know why I can sleep good at night? Because he's God and I'm not. You know why you can sleep good at night? Because he's on his throne and you're not. He is always God and always will be God. And he is always sovereign. Rest in his sovereignty. Let me give you just one more thing on that. It's, it's too good to pass up. I know I said I was going to end there. I'm not. One more thing. It's another Spurgeon quote. I know we struggle with the sovereignty of God sometimes. And we think, man, how can that be? All of these things and bad things and evil things and sufferings how do all of these things gratuitous evil how do these things how can god be sovereign in all of these things unfolding spurgeon said when you can't trace his hand 
you can always trust his heart. The God who is completely sovereign is completely good and gracious too. He is a good, good God. His ways we may not understand. His wonders and how he performs them we may not always grasp, but we can always trust his heart. He is a good God. Number two, we see in this text that we need to accept our responsibility. This is the flip side of God's sovereignty. God is entirely sovereign, but we as humans are also entirely responsible. This is what Jesus says of Judas here in the text. Jesus is going the way in which the Father has ordained for him to go. He is going to the cross, and nothing will stop that at God's appointed time. And as a means of getting him there, he will use the treachery and the betrayal of Judas. Judas, who gave himself over to sin and gave opportunity for Satan to work in him in this manner. But Jesus makes it clear. Judas is entirely responsible. He said in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That's divine sovereignty. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That's human responsibility. Judas is responsible for the sins that he is committing against Jesus the Christ. And it reminds us today that we are responsible as moral creatures for the choices and the decisions and the actions that we make, including the sins which we are culpable for. Yes, God is sovereign even over those sins and sovereign over evil and sovereign over choices that we make and works all things out according to the perfect counsel of his will. But we are responsible for our actions. Again, I confess to you that there is mystery. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that he has revealed to us, we are responsible for. And and the scriptures are clear. We are responsible for our hearts and our actions before him. And I stress this point because many of us today need to recognize and accept that responsibility. One of the things that we see happening and unfolding in our culture today is the putting off of responsibility. We see this in so many arenas and in so many avenues of culture today. Nobody is responsible. It's not my fault. It's not that I did anything. It's always somebody else. Well, that's nothing new. That's just the tactic of the enemy coming to us in a new way and new packaging. That's been happening from the very beginning. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. It's Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, disobeying the command of God, not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God comes upon the scene after their disobedience, and he asks Adam, hey, what's going on? You know what Adam said? It's that woman you gave me. (laughs) Guys, it never works. It didn't work for Adam, and it won't work for you. Accept responsibility. We are responsible for the sin that we harbor in our heart. Oh, how we need to recognize that. Until we recognize the responsibility that we bear, we will never seek the remedy that Christ provides. We must accept our responsibility before God. He is holy and we are sinful. Number three, this text teaches us that we need to examine our faith vigilantly. We need to examine our faith vigilantly here's one of the most alarming things of this scene as it unfolds nobody suspects judas it's the other 11 that are going mate is it me is it me nobody nobody has judas on their radar nobody has judas on their bingo card as the one who will betray jesus i mean he was the one that carried the money the guy that carries the money has got to be the most trustworthy guy in the group right Even when Judas leaves that evening, nobody is of any suspicion that he's about to commit one of the greatest sins ever done. 
So this text reminds us we must be careful in examining our faith to see if it is, in fact, a genuine faith. To see if it is a real faith. It's a reminder that our closeness and proximity to the things of God and the people of God doesn't secure the genuineness of our faith. And listen, I am so concerned that there are many who sit on church pews this morning and sit there Sunday after Sunday, and they're close, and they're in proximity, and they're familiar with the things of God, but their faith isn't genuine. And their faith isn't genuine because their heart is not satisfied in Jesus. Judas' ultimate sin was that his heart was filled with, with covetousness. He, he served the master of money and mammon rather than serving Jesus Christ. He, he didn't see Jesus as his greatest treasure. He saw what he carried in his wallet as his greatest treasure. And he wanted to see how he could get more of that. That's why he was so upset with Mary and that costly ointment that she anointed Jesus with. That, that's why he was so easily enticed by just 30 measly pieces of silver to sell Jesus out. So we need to examine the genuineness of our faith and ask, are our hearts really set upon Jesus Christ? And I'm afraid that there may be some, maybe even many, but their faith under scrutiny is not real. Let me share with you the words of J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop from a generation ago. He says that in this occurrence of Judas in the Last Supper, we observe to what lengths a man may go in a false profession of religion. He says it is impossible to conceive a more striking proof of this painful truth than the history of Judas Iscariot. If ever there was a man who at one time looked like a true disciple of Christ and seemed to reach heaven, seemed likely to reach heaven, that man was Judas. He was chosen by the Lord Jesus himself to be an apostle. He was privileged to be a companion of the Messiah, an eyewitness of his mighty works throughout his earthly ministry. He was an associate of Peter, James, and John. He was sent forth to preach the kingdom of God and to work miracles in Christ's name. He was regarded by all the 11 apostles as one of themselves. He was so like his fellow disciples that they did not suspect him of being a traitor. And yet this very man turns out at last as a false-hearted child of the devil, departs entirely from the faith, assists our Lord's deadliest enemies, and leaves the world with a worse reputation than anyone since the days of Cain. Never was there such a fall, such an apostasy, such a miserable end to a fair beginning, such a total eclipse of a soul. Those are some hard words to hear. The words that should ring into the depths of our souls and call us to examine our faith, to see, are we genuine? Are we real? Are we truly treasuring Christ? Or is our heart set on other masters? We need to test the genuineness of our faith. Number four, this text reminds us that we need to seize today's opportunity. And this is what is perhaps so heartbreaking about the story. Judas had regarded sin in his heart and he didn't deal with that issue of, of greed. He didn't walk in humility. And sin had began to rule and reign over him. But even in these last moments, Jesus was still extending opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Repent. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. But time and time again, Judas simply refused. Again, John's gospel kind of fills in some of the space that Mark leaves open. John tells us in John 13 that at the beginning of that evening as they came to the upper room that Jesus humbled himself in the form and fashion of a servant and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. 
Counted among them was Judas, and, and Jesus comes and he bows before Judas there, and he, he, he tenderly and lovingly washes the feet of the man that he knows is going to betray him. And in those moments, Jesus is speaking and he's saying, uh, you need to be clean, you need to be clean, you need to be clean. And Judas just simply lets it pass him by. Uh, later, as the evening's events begin to unfold, Judas is there close with Jesus He's there in the group. He's there at the table, a sign of, of friendship and camaraderie and fellowship. And yet he simply lets that opportunity pass him by. And then in that last moment, John tells us, as Jesus dips the bread in the paste and then hands it to Judas. It wasn't simply a, a sign. It was, but it was more. Again, in this culture, to share a meal in that fashion, to pass a piece of bread to another in that way, was a sign of intimacy and friendship and fellowship. Jesus is saying one last time, I am the friend of sinners. I am here for you. Repent, turn, believe. Don't do what your heart is inclined to do. And Judas simply walks out of the room. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And he squanders them again and again and again. Let me remind us all this morning that there is a day when there will be no more opportunity. Sinclair Ferguson said it well. At first, Judas would not repent. He would not turn from this act of treachery. He would not uh, turn from this act of betrayal. He would not turn from the greed that had, had taken hold of his heart. He would not turn and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. But as the events unfold in Mark's gospel, we see Judas again, and he, he realizes, he realizes what he has done, that he has shed the innocent blood of, of Jesus, the Son of God. And, and oh, he, he regrets his actions, but Ferguson is right. At the first, he would not repent, but eventually he could not repent. The opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord had passed him by. Let me remind you this morning that the best time to do business with God is when God is doing business with you. And should God be speaking to your heart today? Should God be calling to you about some sin that you're harboring? Should God be, be giving a, a recognition that your faith is not genuine, that you're, you're simply there in association, but you're, you're not there as one whose heart has been changed? Listen. And don't let this opportunity pass you by to come to him. And the reason and purpose for that is where I end this morning, the end of our text. It reminds us that we must all prepare for eternity. We must prepare for eternity. Some of the strongest words to ever pass across the lips of our Savior come at the end of verse 21. Speaking of Judas and his act of treachery and betrayal, Jesus says, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus understood the ultimate judgment that was awaiting Judas for denying Jesus as God's son, for, for, for harboring sin in his heart and rejecting the, the grace of Jesus that had been extended to him. He understood that, that a judgment awaited that eternal damnation was there. I realized this morning that, that that's not a pleasant topic in our culture today. That the concept and the idea of a literal hell and people facing judgment from a righteous and a holy God, it doesn't sit very well in our consciousness and our culture, but it doesn't change the fact that that's exactly what Jesus says is coming. Jesus is clear. 
Judas stepped out into a Christless eternity. Judas stepped out as he drew his last breath into eternity apart from the goodness and the grace and the glory of God. And instead, he faced the outer darkness. He faced weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He faced an eternity of hell. And so Jesus is reminding us here on this somber occasion that we need to make preparations to avoid going there. Jesus says it so so powerfully. It had been better if that man had never been born than to face what's coming for him in eternity. J.C. Ryle said it this way. Except a man be born again, he'd wish he'd never been born at all. Except a man be born again, he wished he'd never been born at all. Oh, Jesus is pressing here in these last words of this Last Supper, before leading us to the Lord's Supper, that eternity hangs in the balance. And the glorious good news of the gospel is that those who have been born can be born again through what Jesus accomplishes at the cross. That through his life as a sacrifice, his blood as a payment, and by faith in him alone, we can be made new creations. We can become new creatures. Our hearts can be set free from sin. And we can have life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. And then, and then the joys of knowing that when our day comes, we're ushered into the glories of heaven. We're allowed to enjoy eternity with God. Oh, but that wasn't the way it was for Judas. And my hope for each of you is that it won't be that way for you. But that today, if you'll not harden your heart, if you'll hear his voice, accept your responsibility, examine your faith carefully, and realize today, if it's not genuine, if it's not real, he's calling you to come and trust in him, the one who gave his life for sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word today, and I pray that in the power of your Spirit, these words would work in our hearts and our lives to cause us to think well about our faith, to think well of who you are as the sovereign God of all creation and the comfort it brings in knowing you and knowing that you're in control, the realization that we are accountable for our sins against you. And the glorious good news of knowing that those sins can be dealt with through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray for the one today that perhaps has never believed in this gospel. That today they would call upon Jesus in faith. I pray for the one today that perhaps their faith isn't genuine. There's a lot of elements, there's a a lot of things that are hanging upon the tree, but it's not real. It's a fake tree. And today, Lord, I pray that they would come to you in complete surrender, acknowledging their sin and trusting in you for eternal life. Father, we pray your word would be at work, that your spirit would use it to accomplish your good purposes among us now. And we ask for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.